So we're going to get started here. Dr. Paola is a graduate of the Yale University School of Medicine, 1984, and the NYU School of Law in 1991. He is Professor, Health Professions Division, Nova, Nova Southeastern University, and Medical Director of the NSU Physician Assistant Program in Southwest Florida. He is also Associate Professor of Medicine at the Division of Ethics, Humanities, and Palliative Care at the Morsani College of Medicine at the University of South Florida in Tampa. Uh, please welcome Dr. Paola. Well, thanks. Um, thanks for uh, uh, having me speak at your uh, at your meeting. I'm real glad to be here. And um, what I'm going to do this morning is talk about uh, some of the legal issues uh, that surround uh, aesthetic practices. And most of the uh, uh, aesthetic practices that I'm going to talk about involve uh, laser hair removal. Um, and I thought that the way that I would go about uh, approaching the topic would be to uh, look at some of the recent cases uh, that have um, been decided uh, on, this, uh, on this topic. Uh, in the, in the um, course of uh, talking about this uh, topic, I think that one of the things that you'll see, you'll see some themes that run through the talk, is the concept of the practice of medicine and whether uh, cosmesis, as it pertains to laser hair removal, is the practice of medicine or not. We'll have a chance to talk about uh, medical malpractice and some of the elements, uh, particularly those elements that uh, impact this particular topic, such as the standard of care. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the, the relationship between the, the question of whether uh, laser hair removal is the practice of medicine uh, and the standard of care and, and uh, how that uh, impacts uh, medical malpractice cases uh, in a practical way. The first case that I'm going to talk about, uh, as you can see from uh, this slide, which uh, depicts uh, films that at least uh, partly uh, took place uh, in the state, uh, involves the state of Wyoming. And the case is, is a Witherspoon uh, v. Teton Laser Center. See that the case was decided in, in January of 2007. And in this case, uh, a plaintiff brought an action against an obstetrician gynecologist uh, alleging that uh, she was uh, uh, burned and scarred uh, as a result of negligent laser hair removal. And the tr the tri she tried to introduce the testimony of a uh, Lorenzo Coons, who was the owner of a laser college, but was not a uh, licensed healthcare profession. He was not a physician. And the defendant, uh, Dr. L, uh, asked for and received a, a judgment as a matter of law. And a judgment as a matter of law is basically a, a motion that's made uh, by the party saying that uh, he or she uh, is entitled to a verdict on the basis of, of uh, law because all of the facts are agreed upon or all of the material facts are agreed upon and that no reasonable jury acting on the evidence before it could decide for the other party. So in essence, what happens is that the court takes the case away from, from the jury. So that's what a judgment as a matter of law is. Now the question becomes, well, why did, 
why did the defendant uh, prevail? Why did the defendant actually uh, enjoy the benefit of such a, uh, a judgment? And in order to, to talk about that, we need to talk a, a little bit about uh, the elements of medical malpractice action. As uh, many of you uh, probably know, uh, in order for a plaintiff to prevail, a plaintiff has to prevail on all four elements that comprise the medical uh, malpractice action. So they have to prove, first of all, that the defendant owed them a duty. Secondly, that the defendant breached that duty, that their conduct, in other words, fell below the standard of care. Third, that they were damaged in a way that the law protects them against. And fourth, that the defendant's breach was the cause of the damage that they sustained. Now, in order to do that, in order to, to uh, prevail on the second element, the standard of care element, uh, medical malpractice defendants and plaintiffs, too, uh, have to uh, employ the testimony of expert witnesses. What is the standard of care? Well, this is probably the best uh, expression or statement of the standard of care that I've, I've ever come across. Or get, uh, uh, come across. Okay. Um, it's from an old case. It's from uh, Pike v. Hansiger in, in New York State in 1898. It says, the physician is under an obligation to exercise that degree of knowledge, skill, diligence, and care that the ordinary competent practitioner would exercise under the same or similar circumstances. The physician is under the further obligation to use his or her best judgment in exercising his skill and applying his knowledge. How is the standard of care established? Well, the expert has to testify to something. What does the expert testify to? Traditionally, the experts testified to what's called medical custom or usage. In other words, they answered the question, did the conduct of the defendant conform to customary medical practice? Did the defendant act as an ordinary, reasonable physician would have acted under the same or similar circumstances? And in most cases, again, you need to employ an expert witness uh, in order to, to establish that. Uh, there's an evolving standard which is becoming the uh, majority standard. In fact, it might even be uh, the majority standard, which is the reasonable physician standard. Okay, it still requires uh, expert testimony, but in this case, what the experts testify to uh, is not whether the physician behaved as physicians ordinarily or customarily do, but whether, more directly, did the physician behave as, as a physician, as a reasonable physician should behave. Not as they actually do, but how should they behave? And uh, as of 2000, um, this was, uh, you can see that this was becoming uh, the majority rule. And interestingly, Wyoming uh, is a state that uh, follows the reasonable physician standard. Okay, um, now, who can testify? Who can testify to this? Well, the general rule is the same school, okay? So because only members of the same school of practice can set the standard of care, only physicians can set the standard of care against the physician, and in general, which would be important for, uh, for uh, you, only physician assistants can set the standard of care against other physician assistants. So 
What does all this mean in terms of Witherspoon, getting back to our case? The plaintiff appeals, the plaintiff appeals uh, the initial decision of the court, and the court has to decide whether the striking of Kuhn's testimony, remember Kuhn's was not a physician, they struck the testimony. The court has to decide whether the striking of the plaintiff's expert witness was a mistake or not, should they have done it. Now, the reason they struck the testimony was a technicality. It had nothing to do with the substance of the testimony or his credentials, okay? So the answer is yes, it was an error, but it's not interesting to us, the fact that, they, that it was an error. What's interesting to us is the answer to the question, was the striking of the plaintiff's expert witness harmful error? In other words, did it matter to the outcome of the case? Okay? The defendant said, of course it mattered to the outcome of the case. Since Kuhn's was not a medical doctor, uh, sorry, the defendant said, of course it didn't matter. Because since Kuhn's was not a medical doctor, any error in striking his testimony was harmless. The plaintiff said it did matter. And their argument was that this was not a medical malpractice case. And the court agrees. The appeals court writes, this is not a medical malpractice action. And the court concludes, quote, since a patient may perform intense, since a person may perform intense pulse light hair removal without a license, it is clearly not the practice of medicine as the above statute would be violated. Um, under Wyoming law, uh, the, the supervising physician need not be on site. The law doesn't specify whether the physician has to, has to be on site uh, or whether it can be done, uh, uh, who can do it. And so if you think about it, this was a little bit, the court engaged a little bit in, in question begging. In other words, in assuming, to, in assuming the answer to the very question that they were charged with answering. Now, uh, in terms of what would, have, would it have made a difference if the defendant in this case was a physician assistant? Well, what's the standard of care that's applicable to physician assistants? Should they be held to the same standard of care uh, as other physician assistants, or should they be held to the standard of care of physicians, of the supervising physician? The rule, the majority rule, is uh, expressed in this case, this relatively recent case, uh, Cox v. Primary and Urgent Care Clinic from Tennessee. You can see it's a 2010 case. And uh, the court decided in that case, and again, this is the majority rule, uh, that physician assistants are held to the same standard of care as other physician assistants. But there are exceptions, and these are the four exceptions that I was able to identify. Uh, Michigan, Wyoming, uh, coincidentally, uh, South Carolina, and Louisiana. And in these states, physician assistants are held to the standard of care of the supervising physician. Specifically in Wyoming, which is the, the state in which Witherspoon took place, uh, and this is a, uh, an excerpt from the uh, Wyoming Board of Medicine Rules and Regulations, the board does not recognize or bestow any level of competency upon a PA to carry out a specific uh, task. Such recognition of skill is the responsibility of the supervising physician. However, a physician assistant is expected to perform with similar skill and competency and to be evaluated by the same standards as the physician 
in the performance of assigned duties. So pretty clear, I think, that that rule and regulation is holding physician assistants in Wyoming to the same standard of care as a supervising physician. Now, it doesn't matter in this case because, again, the court decided that uh, the, the uh, laser hair removal is not the practice of medicine, so it would not have had an outcome, uh, it would not have had an effect on the outcome of the, of the Witherspoon case, okay? Had the court decided otherwise, it might have had an outcome. The second case uh, took place, as uh, you can see from uh, this slide, in um, Missouri. And this case uh, illustrates the importance of the medicine, practice of medicine, or not practice of medicine distinction, uh, but not from a, a substantive view as the first case did, okay? Not from a substantive view. That's, I think, what happened in the first case. It had an effect on the substance of the case. But this uh, illustrates the importance of the medicine or not medicine uh, distinction from a procedural standpoint. Mitchell v. McAvoy in 2007 uh, was decided. And the events uh, took place uh, sometime before that. You see that on, uh, in August of 2001, uh, a Martha McAvoy, who was a registered nurse, employee of uh, a physician who was certified in plastic surgery and uh, ENT, performed laser hair removal on a plaintiff who alleged uh, that she was burned uh, as a result on her chin, neck, and chest. And she filed suit almost, but not quite five years later. And that's important uh, for reasons that'll uh, be clear in a second. The defendant filed a motion to dismiss due to the expiration of the statute of limitations, which as you know, the, the statute of limitations basically sets a time limit on when a plaintiff can bring an action against the defendant, uh, and it's limited, uh, the, the, the statute of limitation basically starts, the clock for the statute of limitation starts ticking when the plaintiff either learns that they've been injured or should have learned that they, they've been injured, okay? Now under Missouri law, uh, Missouri statute section uh, 516.105, it requires that actions against healthcare providers be brought within two years. Actions against healthcare providers that deal with healthcare claims. Whereas actions for run-of-the-mill negligence, okay, actions outside of the med-mal context, they can be brought within five years. Okay, so you have a longer statute of limitations. So the plaintiff argues that laser hair removal is not healthcare, and so the five-year statute of limitation should apply. The trial court grants the plaintiff's motion to dismiss uh, and, I'm sorry, the plaintiff argues that the laser hair removal is not healthcare and so the five-year statute of limitation should, should apply. The trial court grants the motion of the defendant to dismiss and the plaintiff appeals. The appellate court has to decide now the issue of whether laser hair removal is healthcare. Because if it's healthcare, that's gonna have an impact on, on which statute of limitations should apply. The, health, the appellate court writes, the issue of whether laser hair removal is a healthcare service under the statute is an issue of first impression in Missouri. And that means that this court hasn't had to decide this question before. And the court finds that 
they look at the legal landscape in Missouri and they deci decide that laser hair removal is basically unregulated, wholly unregulated in the state of Missouri. There was, however, proposed uh, legislation that the Missouri legislature uh, had not acted upon. And the, the court looked at that legislature. They looked at the, at the bill uh, that had not uh, been enacted. And one of the things that the, that the bill, the unenacted bill, uh, did was it, it divided a laser treatment into a couple of different categories and specifically asked the question of whether uh, the laser that was being used coagulated tissue or not. And uh, it would have discriminated between lasers that coagulated tissue and lasers that didn't coagulate tissue. And so what the, what the court writes, this is a quote, although the legislature has not acted upon the proposed bill, reading the bill brings to light the amount of information that is lacking in the record before us. The trial court did not have sufficient evidence to conclude as a matter of law that the defendant was performing a health care service. Therefore, the trial court erred in granting summary judgment to the defendant. Okay, so they didn't, they didn't answer the question directly as to whether laser hair removal was health care or not. All they said is that the trial court was wrong to answer the question without having more of a factual record, more of an evidentiary record. Okay, they didn't see anything in the in the trial court transcript about coagulation of tissue. Again, not clear why the court uh, found the contents of a bill that was not enacted relevant, but they did, and, uh, and so uh, the, uh, the uh, parties have to live with that. Now subsequently, subsequent to the decision in this case, uh, the Missouri Board of the Healing Arts uh, took a position although somewhat, somewhat of an equivocal position, but they did take an, uh, a position which is mapped out at this site. You can access it. And the, the relevant quote is, is uh, contained below. It says, the use of medical lasers, laser-like devices, and intense pulse light therapy devices may constitute the practice of surgery. So it at least affords, although, like I said, although it's somewhat equivocal, it affords some guidance to future Missouri courts uh, who would be faced uh, with similar uh, cases, similar questions. The next case uh, took place in Indiana. And this case illustrates, again, the significance of the importance of the distinction between whether laser hair removal is the practice of medicine or not the practice of medicine, again, for procedural reasons. It, but these, this time, the procedural reasons are unrelated to the statute of limitations, okay? You'll see that the procedural importance of, the, of deciding that question is different in this case. So in 2006, um, the plaintiff undergoes laser hair removal 